We say in song that we will glorify Christ, that we are resolved, we are determined to glorify him, to boast in him. We say that in song, and now we have an opportunity to show that we meant it when we sang it. Because now we would glorify the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is the great I am, by hearkening unto his word and listening with faith that we might grow in our understanding of it and go forth and live by it. So you can see in your bulletin this morning that we're turning to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We launched this sermon series a few weeks ago. Our theme in this series is what I'm calling the habits of grace. The Christian life that we're called to live, it is a life that's all about experiencing the grace of God, and it's a life in which we experience that grace, in part as He blesses our own regular, our own habitual efforts to seek and serve Him. The habits of grace, and over the first few weeks, We've been learning about that. We've been exploring that theme from the pastoral letters of Paul. And so we turned to 2 Timothy and then Titus and then last week to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And remember what we saw there last week, 1 Timothy 4. There Paul said, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness Trusting the promise that godliness is valuable for this life and the life to come. Train yourself for godliness and don't allow yourself to get distracted, for example, by irreverent and silly myths. So that was last week, 1 Timothy 4. And that brings us to this week, Luke chapter 5. And the reason we're turning to Luke 5 is that... It gives us the opportunity to fix our eyes on Christ and to see that when it comes to the habits of grace, the habits of God's favor, Christ went first. Perhaps surprisingly, even in connection with this theme, we can say that Christ led the way. So we are going to focus on verse 16 this morning, and we're going to notice, by the way, what it says in there about Jesus as a man of prayer, but I am going to read, as you can see in your bulletin, a larger swath of the chapter, and I'm going to do that because it's important for us to see where that one verse, verse 16, is situated. So listen now to God's Word, Luke 5. Beginning at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, 
Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. But when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd... They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home. Glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray together. Father, they saw extraordinary things that day, and now we have too just to hear these stories. We have beheld extraordinary things in the teaching and the healing 
of our Savior's ministry. Now we pray that you would bless us, that you would teach us by these things, that we might not only see, but do as well. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's not uncommon for someone who's a public figure, someone who's regularly, perhaps constantly, interacting with crowds, it's not uncommon for them to need to find a way to carve out some time when they can get away, when they can get away from the crowds and reconnect in some way with what they know matters most. Maybe it's the, the politician who spends all day shaking hands and holding rallies and pausing for photos. Maybe it's the rock star who's constantly barraged by fans and agents and producers and all the rest. Maybe it's the high-powered businessman who spends all day dealing with employees and customers and shareholders, and he knows there's a lot riding on the success of his business. Whatever it might be, they know that they need to find a way to carve out some time when they can get away. Jesus did too. Jesus, who was, to put it mildly, a public figure. Jesus, who regularly, even constantly, found himself dealing with crowds and disciples and opponents. The incarnate Son of God stole away on his own. And he did so regularly. And he did so for the purpose of communing with his Father in prayer. And we get a glimpse of that here in Luke 5. So, Christian, whenever you feel that way, and don't we all, whenever you feel like you need to get away and sit with God, You can just imagine your Savior saying, I get it. Of course you do. I understand. I remember. I did too. And you know, he says, I made it a habit. And you can too. I'll help you. Because he's that kind of Savior. So let's take a look here at Luke 5. And as I said before, I read, we're going to to notice especially verse 16 in this passage I just read. That's the verse where it says, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray, verse 16. But the reason why I wanted to read so much of this chapter on either side of that verse is that it's good for us to be reminded of the kind of ministry that Jesus was carrying out. That'll help us to appreciate verse 16. If we look on either side of it and fill out our understanding of what Jesus' ministry was like, what his public ministry was like, in the midst of which he would steal away for these private moments. So what was his ministry like? Well, for example, we can say... 
that it was a ministry of preaching and teaching. That's here in Luke 5, right? He was declaring the word of God. He was telling people the truth of God. So preaching and teaching. It was also a ministry of healing. Jesus was restoring people who came to him with all sorts of maladies. As we heard at the end of the passage, he was healing people who were brought to him in the most remarkable way. So it was a ministry of healing as well. It was also a ministry of calling. And by that I mean he was calling people to himself to come alongside him, to go with him, to learn from him, to serve with him. Calling. It was also a ministry of popular appeal. Crowds came to him. They, they pressed in on him. They followed him. We can say they hounded him. Even when he didn't want word to get out, it did anyway. So that the crowds kept coming and pressing and following and hounding. Popular appeal. It was also a ministry of powerful opposition. I mean, the opposition that he experienced firsthand. The leaders of his own people, in effect, the leaders of the church, they didn't understand him. They challenged him. They accused him. They stood against him. Powerful opposition. And one more. Not only was it a ministry that was marked by all of those other things, but then it was also a ministry of traveling. He went from town to town and did these things and experienced these things. It wasn't just one place, traveling. So just from this one chapter alone, Luke 5, we can say all of that about the public ministry of Jesus. It was a ministry of preaching and teaching and healing and calling and popular appeal and powerful opposition and traveling. And here's the point. That's exhausting, a ministry like that. All of those various aspects of his ministry required him to pour himself out in some way. All of that was hard, challenging, exhausting in different ways, even for the sinless, incarnate Son of God in his human nature. Not that there was any sin in him, but precisely because it was a true human nature that he had taken to himself, a true human nature in which he was carrying out this ministry, well then, of course, it was taxing to pour himself out in a ministry like that. And it was in the midst of a ministry like that that we read verse 16. So look at verse 16 again. And it's printed there in your bulletin, if that helps. Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The way Luke puts it, I mean, even the verb tense that he uses to say that, it communicates the idea that this was something that Jesus did regularly. Just as the crowds 
regularly came to him. Jesus regularly withdrew to desolate places to pray. It wasn't one time. It wasn't now and then. It wasn't come and go. He did this regularly. He did this habitually. Over and over again, in the midst of his public ministry, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And to give you some sense of what his prayer life was like, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this verse from the book of Hebrews later in the Old Testament. Reflect in the New Testament, reflecting upon Jesus' life of prayer. This is Hebrews 5, verse 7. It says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews 5, verse 7. Jesus was a man of habitual prayer like that. Just in case you're ever tempted to think that habitual activity just means going through the same old tired motion. Just in case you're ever tempted to think that habitual activity means monotonous, disinterested activity. Just checking the boxes, just going through the motions, think again. And let the example of Jesus in prayer cause you to think again. His was a habit of prayer, and it was a life of prayer that was marked by loud cries and tears. So what's the point? What's the implication? What's the lesson here? Well, the lesson is this, as I was saying before, even even in this regard, Christ went first. Christ led the way. The lesson is, it's a good thing to live a life marked by spiritual patterns. Patterns in which we commune with God as well as with the people of God. It's good to live a life like that. Jesus did, the sinless Son of God. And then we can take it a step further. So we've noticed that he was a man of prayer like this. We conclude from that that it's good to live a life like that, but then we can take it a step further. It's not just that it's good to live like that. It's also how you grow. It's also how you grow in your communion with God and in your service of God. Jesus grew. The incarnate Son of God, that was characteristic, it had to be, of the life that he lived in this world. Remember what it says about him in Luke chapter 2? Reflecting upon his, his upbringing. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 says this about Jesus. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's verse 40. And then a few verses later, same chapter, Luke 2, verse 52, it says something very similar. It says this. 
Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew like that. Jesus increased in God's favor. Obviously not in the sense that he had to put sin to death the way we do. Or in the sense that he had to unlearn wrong thinking about God the way we do. But he grew. In the sense that he was developing and honing his own true human capacities for learning and and loving and seeking and serving. And the more he did so, well, then naturally, I mean naturally, the more there was in him for the Father to find delightful. In that sense, we can say, Luke 2 can say, that Jesus increased in God's favor. And he did so in part by living that faithful life of spiritual habits, rhythms, routines from the beginning. Jesus increased in God's favor. As I've been saying in this sermon series, we we typically use the word grace, and rightly so. Grace to refer to the favor of God by which God saves sinners. And Jesus certainly wasn't a sinner who needed to be saved. He didn't need God's favor like that. But that same word that we have in our Bibles that's translated grace, that same word can be used more broadly to refer to God's favor apart from any sin at all. The smile of God that he shows to another, the pleasure of God that he takes in another, apart from any considerations of sin. And so the sinless son grew, increased, to know his father's smile more and more. The sinless son grew in the sense of the pleasure that his father took in him more and more. And he grew like that because he was somebody who sought his father over and over again. And here's one more thing to notice about all of that. It wasn't just his private prayer. Right? We we noticed that in Luke 5. Jesus, in the course of his ministry, would regularly, habitually withdraw to desolate places to pray. But it wasn't just his life of private prayer. Because here's something I I want you to notice as well about Luke chapter 2. I read for us before those two verses. Verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then down the page, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Verse 40 and verse 52. Do you know what happens between those two verses? What's recorded for us there? It's the episode of the boy Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. And maybe you remember the story. Young Jesus is there at the temple in Jerusalem, and he's interacting with the teachers there. And he's asking very good questions, and he's giving very good 
answers of his own that are amazing. And his parents are in a panic until they realize that's where he is because they lost track of him for a while. But here's the point. Here's how that episode is introduced in Luke 2. It says this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. They did this every year. It was their custom. It was their habit. And now he, he's being brought up in that. He's being trained in that. That's part of what it meant to be faithful to God. If you could, you'd go up to Jerusalem every year to worship God at the Passover. And now Jesus is being brought up in that every year. And from his youth, apparently, Jesus is now seizing that annual occasion as a chance to ask and answer and learn and grow. You realize what that means. What that means is that Jesus increased in God's favor by participating as a faithful custom in the worship patterns of the people of God. Jesus increased in God's favor by being brought up to be a faithful, regular worshiper of God with the church. So it wasn't just his life of private prayer. And not only that, but it wasn't just when he was young. Because later in the Gospels, we find that he's still going back. To Jerusalem, as a man now, in the course of his ministry now. So you see, both personally and corporately, the life of Jesus was a life of beautiful, heartfelt spiritual habit. It was good that he lived that way, and it was how he grew, both personally and corporately. That's what his life was like, a life of beautiful, heartfelt, spiritual habit. It was good, and it was how he grew. And all of that we can say about the sinless, incarnate Son of God. And I do realize it can seem a little strange to think about Jesus' life in these terms. And I say that because we can associate, because of our own experience, we can associate a life of spiritual habit exclusively with a life of putting sin to death. And so it can seem strange to think about Jesus' life in these terms. So maybe this will help. Imagine somebody who's got to follow a physical therapy regimen of some sort, right? We've been noticing already in the sermon series the helpful analogies between the body and the soul, the the regular care for the body and the regular care for the soul. Well, just imagine somebody who's got to follow a physical therapy regimen for a while, a series of exercises. And maybe they've got to follow it because... They're recovering from something. 
they're recovering from injury, or they're getting over surgery, whatever it might be. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's not that they've got to recover from something that just happened. Maybe instead it's a physical therapy program that they've got to follow that's meant to address something that's been troubling them for a long, long time. Maybe even something they were born with. And now they're finally getting around to taking up a series of exercises that are meant to address it, whatever it might be. Well, you can totally imagine that person could very easily get to the point of associating exercise exclusively with recovery or repair, recovery from calamity of some kind, repair of of brokenness of some sort. That person could very easily get to the point of associating exercise exclusively with addressing something that went wrong, right? You only exercise if something needs to be fixed that isn't what it's meant to be. Something went wrong. You can imagine those sorts of assumptions beginning to form in the mind, those thought patterns. Well, then imagine that person gets to chatting with someone else who's exercising. Maybe it's someone else who's using the machines at the gym, or it's someone else who's going for a run on the same path in the same park, and they get to chatting, and that first person says to that someone else, so what are you getting over? What are you recovering from? What went wrong with you? And that someone else says, what do you mean? What do you mean? What went wrong? And that first person says, well, it must be that something went wrong, right? Why else would anybody be using these machines? Why else would anybody be going for a run? I remember when our family gathered um, to join in the turkey trot on Thanksgiving morning in Pittsburgh one year, and the place was crawling with runners, and folks were parking their cars to gather for the run, and there was this great bumper sticker on the back of somebody's car, a great runner's bumper sticker, and it said, my sport is your sport's punishment. I thought that was pretty good. Why else would anybody go for a run? Surely the reason why anybody would be doing these things, the only reason, is that something went wrong so that there had to be recovery or repair. And that someone else says back, well, no, no, I'm, I'm doing these exercises. I'm using these machines. I'm going for this run because I actually love it. Nothing went wrong. I'm in great health. I always have been. I love this. And not only do I enjoy it, but I also love knowing that this is how I stay in great health and grow. This is exactly how I experience the fullness of what it's possible for me to be. I need this and I love that. Nothing went wrong. And so that first person, in a moment of realization, says, ha, had no idea. Or, 
I lost sight of that idea. That first person says, I've gotten so used to doing these exercises in my own life because something went wrong that I have to get used to the idea again that doing them is also an aspect of a life that's right. The idea that I might actually enjoy them. The idea that I might actually enjoy them in part because, as you say, this is how I stay in shape and even get stronger. This is how I experience the fullness of what it's possible for me to be. The idea that it's good and healthy for for me to need this. So that first person says, hold, please, while I rethink my own assumptions. Here's why I think that's an analogy worth reflecting upon. In living the Christian life, and the Christian life is a life that's lived by sinners, and so much of it has to do with putting sin to death. In living the Christian life, we can very easily get to the point of associating a life of spiritual habits exclusively with putting sin to death exclusively with addressing what's wrong with us, and that's when we look at Jesus. That's when we look at the incarnate Son of God, the sinless Son of God. And lo and behold, when we look at Jesus, what do we find but that his was a life of spiritual habits too. In his sinlessness, his was a life of spiritual habits as well. And so it must be that living a life of spiritual exercises and rhythms and routines, that's not something you do just because something went wrong with you. That's something you do even when everything's right with you. And for that matter, the very fact that you're living that life is itself one of the things that's right about you. And it's how you maintain it and grow in it and even delight in it. Look at Jesus, and that's what you see. And here's the beauty of it. That ends up being a source of inspiration for us, for us sinners. Brothers and sisters, can we look at Christ today and and find our souls stirred by that inspiration? The Christian is rightly inspired by the example of his sinless Savior because the Christian can tell himself this life of rhythms and routines, this is an aspect of the goodness of what I am as a human being. And so I'm not just putting sin to death, though I am. But it's more than that. It's also that I'm flourishing as one who bears the very image of God and who's walking in fellowship with God. So, Christian, even when it comes to nurturing a life of spiritual rhythms and habits, even in that, don't be afraid to look to Christ. Don't be shy about seeing in Christ an example of this, because He was and He is. And even better than that, He's an example who's also a Savior who is abundant in mercy. Mercy to forgive us when we haven't followed his lead entirely as we should. 
and also mercy to change us so that we're made more and more like him after all. He's got that kind of mercy to overflowing, and that mercy is new every morning, including this one. So let us fix our eyes on him, and let's pray now in his name. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do fix our eyes on you this day. As one who led the way, we marvel at the life that you lived, and we thank you that it was in your true, perfect, sinless, faithful humanity, a life of habits and rhythms in communion with God and heartfelt even withdrawing regularly to desolate places to pray prayers with loud cries and tears. We fix our eyes on you today. We do ask you to forgive us insofar as we haven't followed your lead, insofar as we have lost sight of your glorious example. Lord, forgive us. And strengthen us this day that we might be renewed in this resolution. And we ask it for your glory among us and for our good. Amen.